The first reading this evening is taken from Romans chapter 13, which is on page 1140, 1140. That's page 1140, Romans chapter 13, the second half of verse 11 to the end of the chapter. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading this evening is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and that can be found on page 1187. Actually, it's uh, just over the page, 1,188. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, Destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, We may live together with him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do keep um, that second passage open. Thank you, Andrew, for reading it. And that's where we're going to be camping out. And um, if you're a note taker, just, I've just got two headings on the back of the uh, notice sheet. But I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, by, by nature, we can neither understand spiritual things of you, nor do we want to. And so we pray for that miracle in our hearts, that double miracle of enabling us to see the truth spiritually and of enabling us to want to see the truth spiritually. Show us Christ and make us love him as we see him for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, let's fast forward half an hour or so, and it's the end of the evening service on the 5th of July, and you, you pick up quite a strong coffee uh, from the table over there, and you get chatting to a, a chap called Bill. Never met him before. It turns out he's a Christian believer. Great. And as you're chatting with him, it's apparent that he's quite emotionally fragile. Uh, you, you probe gently. And it turns out his mother, who was also a Christian believer, died a couple of weeks ago. And it was her funeral this last week. And it all comes tumbling out, mixed with the emotions. You're not quite ready for it. You were just hoping for some small talk chat about Wimbledon. But it all comes tumbling out. And he says the cremation service was just so final, seeing the coffin there. And she just disappeared. And he's distraught. What do you say to Bill? Fast forward to home group in a couple of weeks' time, and you're all sharing prayer requests as you go around at the end of the evening and the great meal and the great Bible study, and you get round to Janet. And suddenly, shockwaves go through the whole group as she opens up. She doesn't ask for prayer for her ailing dog or a cold. She says, I'm really struggling to keep on going as a Christian. I'm tempted, quite frankly, to give up. My Bible reading is dry. Most of my best friends would not call themselves Christians. I'm beginning to question the truth of all this. Is Jesus ever going to come back? What do you say to Janet in that pregnant pause? She's stopped speaking. Something should be said, but you're just not sure what. What do you say to Bill? What do you say to Janet? Well, what we say to one another really, really matters how we use our words Have a look at chapter 4, verse 18. Therefore, Paul says, encourage each other with these words. And then chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. It's easy, isn't it, to think that our words don't really matter a great deal. We, we, We say things like, well... You know, he talks to talk, but does he walk the walk? Or it's just a load of hot air. Or he talks a good talk. And all of those sayings kind of make light of the words that come out of our mouths. 
But we'll all know from our own experience that words are tremendously powerful instruments. In a sense, they're cheap to use, only uses air and my larynx, but they have the capacity to rip people down or, chapter 5, verse 11, to build people up. And therefore, how we use our words is tremendously important, especially where people are discouraged. And in fact, that's exactly the situation Paul was writing to here in uh, the church in Thessalonica. We'll know that if we're regular. We've been listening to this series. The church there was really embattled. Some of the people there had died recently, and uh, they'd been persecuted for their faith, and they felt increasingly sidelined in the public square, and BBC media didn't represent their point of view increasingly. They were nobodies. When they admitted they were a Christian, people sneered. When they went to the Christian meeting in the office, no one else was really there. And so they were thinking, is it worth carrying on? They were really embattled and discouraged. They were a church like us, I might say. And the question is, what should they be saying to one another to encourage one another? What should be trending amongst them? If there was some technological ability to measure a a trending tweet, not a tweet, but a, a conversation over coffee after church, what should be trending amongst them? And Paul gives the answer here. And the answer is the future. The answer is the future. It's not the future in general terms. It's one day. One day, which is not in anyone's calendar exactly, but it's a day which is set in God's Google calendar. And in our passage, it is called the coming of the Lord. It's in chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 5, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 4. It's sometimes simply called this day. This day. And it's the day which should change everything about how this church relates to itself. It's a day that should change how you and I approach the graveside and a funeral. It's a day which should change how we chat to one another at home group and over coffee at the end of the service. What should be trending? It should be hashtag Jesus return. That should be what is trending amongst us. So I've got two headings very simply. The first one is this, Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. Chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, and I dare say sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. It's his shorthand for Christians who die, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. There are some events in life which show, as we say, what we're made of. If you're an athlete, you need to race against the best competitors at the Olympics. You'll see what you're made of there. If you're a soldier, you'll have to face enemy fire. And we'll see what you're made of there. If you're a Christian, there are a whole raft of things which might begin to show what we're made of. Maybe it's a redundancy. Maybe it's a bout of depression. Maybe it's having a child with some disability. Maybe it's deep loneliness. Maybe it's issues with our body image. Could be a whole raft of things. But the supreme test of what we're made of as a Christian, according to Paul here, is grief. 
losing somebody whom we love. Bereavement. Paul says, if you want to find out what a Christian really believes, don't necessarily listen to them sing that song about the creed that we sung. I love that song. Listen to them at the graveside and at the funeral and ask this question. Do they grieve like the rest of humanity? It's not that grief is a bad thing. It is right to be angry and to shed tears at someone who dies. Because death should not be in our world. It's an imposter, a thief. But do they grieve with hope? That's Paul's question. Because grief is a creedal litmus test, according to Paul. Now, of course, it's possible to grieve with an uninformed and a naive and an optimistic kind of a hope, isn't it? A hope which is kind of sugar-coated and is more informed by Clinton cards than any scripture. Do you know the sort of person? Have you been to that kind of funeral? Where someone is so optimistic, they try and put a positive spin even on the grave. And they say, you know, well, they're just in the room next door. They've just passed away. It's okay. They're watching down on me and there's life's poems and it's based on nothing. Actually, those funerals are the most depressing funerals you can ever go to. But if we're a Christian believer this evening, we don't need Clinton cards hope. We need scriptural hope, which is based on one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep, those who've died in him. And I must say, I think this is the most amazing treasure of the gospel, the most amazing jewel in the crown of the gospel. And it's called union with Christ or being in Christ. And the way it works is like this. I suppose many of us will catch a flight to holiday somewhere uh, over this coming summer. And as we board that flight, we will go where the pilot goes. So I'm afraid to tell you, if you get a flight to Malta, you just will end up in Malta, whether you hate it or not, whether you like it or not. Just Malta, there you are, because the pilot went there. You're on his plane. And when we become a Christian, as it were, we board Jesus' flight. He becomes our pilot. And where he goes, we go. And the thing about Jesus is he's died. We also will die if we're a Christian believer one day. But he's risen again from the dead, verse 14. And we know that because he's risen from the dead, if we're in him, united with Christ, we won't end up in Malta. We'll end up in the resurrection paradise, the new creation with him. It's as certain as you like. Not Clinton cards, but scriptural truth. It's a wonderful truth. And I want to apply this truth to two groups here. Firstly, to those of us who are grieving personally for someone we've lost. Secondly, to those of us who aren't. First, to those of us who are grieving. And I know that will be many of us. If you're a newcomer here, you may not know this, but this past year has been a hugely sad year for St. Michael's Chester Square. And besides many other things this year, this last year has been a year of tears because we've lost people who are very dear to us. Let me read out their names. Emmy Lou Astor has died. Hildegard Wiggum has died. Janet Whiting, Michael Bennett, 
Georgette Butcher, Julietta Lazarova, Sarah Johnson, and possibly others known well to you and not known to us as a church whom you're grieving. Each one of those names, a person whom we are grieving for at the moment. And Paul wants us to grieve for them with hope. Now, there's some debate about what the Thessalonian Christians here were were, were confused about at the end of chapter 4. When I opened my commentary, it gave me six different options. I'm not going to walk through all the options with us, but I think the most likely thing is this. It's that the Thessalonian church were thinking they were worried as to whether they were going to see their Christians they were grieving for, their friends, their mothers, their fathers, their friends, on the last day. They were worried that when Jesus came back that they would miss their loved ones somehow that in the corridors of eternity, they'd just pass each other without having a chance to catch up, that in eternity, there'd be no equivalent of the clock at Waterloo Station, a meeting place to hook up and hang out with those of us who've died. That's what I think they were worried about. And Paul allays their fears, verse 15. You're not going to precede the Christians who've already died. You're not going to miss out on a catch up with them. Verse 17, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. The meeting place between heaven and earth, the clouds. Now, I don't know whom you're grieving for, but don't you just long to see them again? Long to hear their laughter, to tell them about your day, go through the photo album with them, share a cup of tea with them, just to be with them. Don't you long for that? And Paul is saying, don't worry, one day when Jesus returns, we will have a chance to do those things. We'll be caught up in the air with them. What a wonderful truth that is. But Paul wants us to long for something even greater than that reunion. Verse 17 moves our eyes from those we grieve for to our Lord Jesus Christ. Read it with me. We'll be caught up together. Good, 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 a chance to catch up. With them, excellent, I can't wait to see him or her. With them to meet the Lord. Now, wouldn't it be crazy to go and see Coldplay at Wembley Arena and get so caught up meeting the friendly bouncer on the way in that we never made it to the concert? We'd be missing the point. Some would say we were deluded. It's a bad use of money. And by the same token... When you and I make it to the new creation, when the Lord Jesus returns, our focus will not be on those loved ones whom we're reunited with. It'll be on him, on the main event, on the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's the main event. I know that's maybe a hard thing to imagine, maybe an impossible thing to think, there's someone I would prefer to see and get to know and be reunited with than the person I'm grieving for. That's hard. Let me just talk us through some of Jesus' characteristics. If we're tempted to think of Jesus as uncommitted to us, he's our groom from all eternity past. He loves us and we'll see him. If we're tempted to think of him as distant from us, he's our friend who sticks closer than a brother and we'll see him. If we're tempted to think of him as weak, He's our champion who's defeated the satanic Goliath and we'll see him as unattractive, 
He's our lover who's outstanding amongst 10,000, and we'll see him. As a bit wet, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, well, he's got King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his thigh, and he's on his white charger at the head of his armies, and we'll see him. He's the bloodied lamb, the one who died for our sins. He's our way and our truth and our life, all wrapped up and pushed into one person. And we'll see him. And won't he be a marvel for us on that day? Jesus is coming, so grieve with hope. It'll be the moment my retina and my optical nerve are made for as they feast themselves on the one who made them. And they project the image of him as he really is, not the Jesus of the storybooks or of the videos and the films, but Jesus as he really is. And I will see him as you see me today and I see you. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is coming. So grieve with hope. I must say that grief is a good thing. I don't want anyone to go away feeling guilty for grieving. The tears will catch us off guard and the tears will outlast the kind of rotors for casseroles and the well-wishing letters that we might receive. That's okay. It's good to cry, but grieve with hope. Secondly, briefly, to apply to those of us who aren't grieving, I don't know about you, if we haven't ever grieved properly for someone we've known and loved, it can be scary and unnerving to know how to love someone who is grieving. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but you can see they're going through the mill, and we want to communicate our love to them, and we don't want to do that in a glib way, but often we resort to just kind of keeping our distance for fear of offending them or maybe sticking to small talk and we kick ourselves for doing it. But what should we say? Well, there is a time for just giving them a hug and saying, I love you, I've been thinking of you, and I'm praying for you. But Paul is saying here there is definitely a time for encouraging that person with these words, for saying, I know you miss him, I know you miss her, you will one day see him, see her. And you know what? You'll see the Lord Jesus Christ as well. And that day will be amazing. So Jesus is coming. Grieve with hope. Secondly, Jesus is coming. So stay awake. Jesus is coming. So stay awake. Now, anyone undergoing suffering of any sort begins to watch the clock. Did anyone see Bradley Wiggins' hour breaking record? No, it is actually a very boring thing to watch, so I'm not surprised. But there he was, uh, cycling around and around in a circle for, for an hour, and I was captivated by that. Anyway, it was only an hour's worth of suffering, 60 minutes on the clock. And he said afterwards, you feel like it's never going to end. That was just 60 minutes. Now, the church in Thessalonica were suffering, being persecuted. Some people were being killed for their faith. And they didn't know when the suffering was going to end. It wasn't suffering in controlled conditions. There was no ability to watch the clock tick down. And so they were asking Paul, when's Jesus going to come back? When's the pain going to end? Because this hurts. And Paul, in a typically robust way, answers them in uh, verse 1. We don't need to write to you about times or dates. Because verse 2, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The point is that Jesus will return as a burglar comes. And it's not that Jesus' second name is Burglar Bill 
or that he carries a swag bag and wears stripy clothes. It's not that he's a kleptomaniac and steals stuff. It's that his return will be unexpected, just as a burglar's return is unexpected. The thing about burglars, and you can ask the fishers about this, not because they're burglars, but because they've been burgled, is that burglars never make an appointment before they come. And especially burglars of this sort, nighttime burglars, they're very unexpected indeed. They just sort of let themselves in. We didn't welcome him, but they're, you know, stealing stuff. And in that sense, the surprise, Jesus' return will be the same. One day he will let himself in through the front door of the universe. No locks will be broken because he has the key. There'll be no knock on the front door, but he'll be in. And he'll be calling people to account. Verse 3, people will be saying, peace and safety. It was one of the taglines of Pax Romana at the time. The great city of Thessalonica amidst the Roman Empire, they covered most of the map. And they were saying, peace and safety, look at us. And by the same token... In London, people will be looking at their life insurance policies and their pension plans and their savings going up and up and Trident and our security services and making a cup of tea and saying, ah, peace and safety. It's all going to be okay. And before the cup of tea is cold, Jesus is back. And he's in the front door of the universe. He's in the house. He's the burglar. He's returned. He's caught people off guard. And then when that moment comes, end of verse 3, there'll be no escape. Paul changes his metaphor here and he moves to the maternity ward. It'll be like labor pains coming on an expectant mother. I'm no expert here. But I'm told when labor pains come, there's no kind of tap out. There's no ejector seat option. There's no I've had enough, let's stop this and press pause You're in for the ride, and it's painful. And in the same way, Paul is saying, when Jesus returns, something has begun which cannot be stopped. And that makes it a very serious thing indeed. On that day, it will be too late to go on the Alpha course and to work out what we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, too late to put our finances and our relationships in good order. In the Bible's language, it will be a day of reckoning, Now is the day of God's favor to sort those things out. But then will be the day of self-loathing and shaking of heads and regrets. It's Jesus the burglar coming back. And people might not be ready. And then at this point in the passage, did you notice the tone changes as Andrew read it? You can almost imagine Paul looking up from his desk or wherever he was writing, lifting his pen and thinking, hmm, now I'm writing to Christians. I'm writing to Christians here. Maybe I should take a different tone with them for the rest. And so verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters at St. Michael's Chester Square, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You're all children of the light and children of the day. One of the ways in which Paul loves to speak of Jesus' return, and I love this image, is of the nighttime preceding the daytime. The nighttime, the darkness before Jesus comes is now. And the daytime when Jesus comes is then. That's the way the image works. We had it in Romans. Our salvation now is nearer than when we first believed. 
the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying it's still technically night time. Jesus hasn't yet returned. But it's basically 5.30 a.m., spiritually speaking. The day is almost here. He's saying the rubbish is being collected loudly by the binmen outside. The alarm is about to go off. The birds are singing in the trees. It's 5.30 a.m. The night is about to become day. Jesus is about to return. And because Christians are children of the day, we belong to Christ. Verse 6, we're not to be like other people who aren't ready for the day. We need to be awake and sober. It's a way of him saying we need to be ready for this day. Now, there are various things that are embarrassing to do in the daytime, and Paul goes through a few of them. It's embarrassing to fall asleep during the daytime. It just doesn't go down well in board meetings. It's embarrassing to fall asleep. It's embarrassing to be drunk in the daytime, Paul says. Don't try and pick up children from school drunk at the school gates. It's embarrassing not to get dressed in the daytime, Paul says. Don't try and go in on the northern line into the city wearing pajamas. There are some things in the daytime we just don't do for good reason. And Paul's saying, I know it's early, 5.30 a.m. spiritually speaking. I know Christ hasn't returned yet, but are we dressed? Are we ready and waiting for him to come? Verse 8, it turns out we're not to wear a pinstripe suit, but armor, the armor of the gospel, faith and hope and love. Stay awake. Now, as I close, two bits of application from this, both of which Janet, remember her from the beginning, she needs to hear. The first is this, waiting for the day for Christ to return is hard. It's hard, simple truth. It puts us in a minority. To run with Paul's example here, his illustration, we're all sitting up, dressed, in our right mind, ready at 5.30 a.m., And if you were to look across London, all the other curtains would be drawn. Everyone else would be snoring in bed. Some would be at a late-night pub lock-in drunk. But we're awake at 5.30 a.m., ready and waiting for Christ. And it's kind of hard to do that. You think, was it worth setting the alarm so early? I'm tired. And I really want to get back into bed, actually. And my eyes are drooping, spiritually speaking, as Janet's were. It's hard. We're in a minority if we're living as a Christian. Second brief thing from this example is this. Staying awake like this is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer to stay awake. The thing about being ready for the day during the night is that the day will surely come. I have never in my whole experience of day and night had a night that isn't succeeded by the day. Have you? No. It's a no-brainer to wait for the day because the day will come. It just always does. And in the same way, Christ's absence now is always followed by his return. That's the logic. And therefore, we're up 5.30 a.m. spiritually speaking. Is it worth it? Janet's thinking about throwing the towel in. It just seems so hard to keep reading my Bible. It just seems so hard to stop living for self and to living for Christ. I just want to climb back into bed And we want to say, no, Jesus is coming soon. We don't know the day, we don't know the time, but it will be unexpected. 
and he will come. Therefore, encourage one another with these things. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we use our words in all sorts of ways at church. And we pray that we would use our words increasingly to encourage one another. To speak of the reality of Jesus' return. To speak of that day. We pray that we would be able to comfort those who grieve with Jesus' return. We pray that we'd be able to spur others on who are tempted to give up with the truth of Jesus' soon coming, his soon return, for your namesake. Amen.